0: Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about trains, planes and automobiles, but mainly automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the latest car sales figures for Australia for the first half of the year. We have a chat to a bloke who owns a 1962 Holden utility while we were sitting in a 2019 Mitsubishi Triton. We couldn't use his car because he wouldn't take it out in the rain. And we have five motoring minutes, the Honda CRV, the Subaru EyeSight Technology, Local Pollution, Genesis and a Ford Ranger. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au all previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. The car sales figures for the first half of the year have just been released with total sales down 8.4%. Of the top 20 brands, only three have improved sales over last year and only marginally. Kia is up by nearly 3% and Mitsubishi and Lexus by less than 1%. Toyota remains number one, followed by Mazda and Hyundai. Ford is fifth, Holden is down to 10th place in total sales. Luxury brands in general are struggling, Audi in particular declined the most. Surprise Package is MG, now owned by a Chinese company. Their sales are not huge, they are in 22nd place, but they are only just below Volvo. Even SUVs and utes are down, although sales of electric, plug-in electric and hybrid SUVs are through the roof. Lee Iacocca was a major motoring industry figure post-Second World War. It's a measure of his impact that while he was the executive who pushed through the implementation of the first Mustang in 1964, that most of his obituaries give this only one or two sentences. He was the head of Ford, but was sacked by Henry Ford II, who gave his reasons as, sometimes you just don't like someone. Iacocca then went to Chrysler that was on the edge of bankruptcy. He negotiated a loan guarantee from the US government to last seven years, but he had it paid back well ahead of schedule. At Chrysler, he pioneered the minivan that became such a successful family car and he fronted the cameras in the company's ads with expressions such as if you can find a better car, buy it. That was at a time when many cars, especially from Europe, were, indeed, much better. In his final year as CEO, Chrysler launched the Jeep Grand Cherokee, still a cornerstone of the brand. Confident to the point of being arrogant, hard-working and dedicated, Lee Iacocca died at the age of 94 from complications with Parkinson's disease. For a long while, it was said that there had been nothing new on a motor car since 1912 when General Motors first introduced the electric starter motor. Everything else has been just a refinement. Well, modern digital technology might have changed this, but small steps continue to happen in traditional technologies. Hyundai has just announced a tweak to the internal combustion engine that they claim will give a 4% boost in performance, a 5% improvement in fuel efficiency and cut emissions by 12%. At the top of the engine, valves are opened and shut to let the fuel in and then the exhaust gases out. Variable valve timing has allowed cars to adjust when this happens to suit the conditions, such as gentle driving or strong acceleration. Now Hyundai have worked out how to vary the duration of opening the valves they unveiled the new continuously variable valve duration technology as part of a new SmartStream G1 engine, a 1.6-litre V4 turbo-petrol motor. New legislation in the EU now requires that all hybrid and electric vehicles sold in the Union must be fitted with an acoustic vehicle alert system, which makes sound so pedestrians and cyclists aren't caught unawares. It's only for four-wheeled vehicles, so motorbike and scooters are not required to make an additional noise. A vehicle only needs to make a noise if it is travelling under 12 miles per hour, just over 19 kilometres per hour, or when reversing. There are no specifications on what the sound should be. Citroën's stubby, cube-like concept, the ME1, plays a cheery tone to announce its arrival whereas Mercedes-Benz have commissioned the American rock band LinkedIn Park to give its EVs a dose of rock, adapted new metal and rap metal to a radio-friendly yet densely layered style in its first two albums, but the band then explored other genres. I can tolerate many sounds, but anything but green sleeves. The amount of traffic in central business areas is being dominated more and more by parcel deliveries. Having parcel vans do a series of deliveries creates congestion, pollution and takes up a lot of on-street parking spaces. To address these challenges, Ford developed cloud-based multimodal routing and logistics software called Link, which in the London Pilot routed delivery vans to central collection points. From there, the so-called last mile of the delivery process was handled by pedestrian couriers transporting parcels in trolley bags. Parcel deliveries in London currently require around 300,000 van trips each day. Those vans spend 9 million hours a year clogging up roads in the city, and parcel deliveries are set to double in the next decade as more customers order online and expect to get their parcels quickly. And that has been the news. So far this year, 62% of all Ford vehicles sold in Australia have been just one model, the Ranger Ute. The Ranger comes with a choice of two or four-wheel drive, two diesel engines, four specification levels and three body styles. But there is also a limited macho double-cab Raptor with a bi-turbo diesel. I drove the top-spec XLT dual cab and found it quiet, smooth and light on the steering with plenty of power from the bigger engine. Good for the family. From $28,300 to a massive $76,000 plus on roads, you pay for the privilege. This is Overdrive across Australia. And now Rob Fraser gives us a motoring minute on the Honda CRV medium-size SUV.
1: The latest all-new CRV, launched in 2018, is bigger and better than the previous model. It's surprising just how much room there is inside as well as clever layout and huge storage areas, especially around the centre console. Powered by a VTEC four-cylinder engine, the CRV has enough power and torque for normal daily driving. And for the most part, the CVT drives the front wheels unless the all wheel drive is needed to prevent wheel slip. The fifth generation COV gives a quiet, enjoyable ride, and the handling has also been improved significantly. Seating is very comfortable for five, and with wide opening doors, access is easy. Even my lumping frame can fit in the back seats, however, the third row of seats are definitely in the occasional category. Boot space is surprisingly large. The COV hits a sweet spot between conservative and exciting, and at a touch over $44,000 plus the usual costs, the Honda COV is pretty good value and definitely worth a drive. This is Overdrive across Australia.
0: Well, we heard in the news about the death of Lee Iacocca, a typical American hero of the motoring industry, big brash and leader of many companies, but also around this time we heard of the death at 98 of Norman Dewis. Now, he was said to be Britain's greatest ever test driver. He started working in a number of companies but ended up in Jaguar for over 30 years. So who better to talk about that than our good friend Christopher, who is a jaguar file, I think, uh, from way back. Is that a fair comment? I think that's probably a fair comment. You've got three at the moment? Four. Four. Okay. Two V12s and a uh, 1957
2: Mark One and uh, a hack car, an XJ40.
0: None of them are worth huge amounts of money. It's not as if you're a super rich person. I I don't mean that derogatory. No, no, no. It's not as if I'm talking to someone with pretentious money. No, not at all, not at all. And, by the way, I'm talking of someone who doesn't have pretentious money as well. (laughs) Someone who doesn't have a car. (laughs) (laughs) I keep borrowing them. That will do it. Norman Dewis. He started before the war in the motor industry, but then he got experience in the war. Yes, well, like uh, many of
2: his generation, of course, he enlisted in the, into the war, but he enlisted in the RAF, and from uh, my reading, he uh, flew Blenheims, and he was a, a gunner, so he was in the turret on the top of the uh, Blenheim. The thing about the turret, or all the planes, that matter, is it wasn't heated. As the turret would turn, the rubber seal let a lot of very, very, very cold air on his back, and he ended up developing a kidney infection, which basically uh, got him out of the war. He had to retire.
0: So he's in a, in a device that had no heater and gaps that let air in. Arian. It was ideal for the car industry.
2: <laughs> yes, the <wasn't it? laughs> 1950s car industry. <laughs> yeah.
0: He worked for Humber. Yeah, he started
2: a, he started an apprenticeship with Humber and uh, he was with Humber for uh, some time and then he moved on to Lee Francis because it was at Lee Francis that uh, he got all his experience in testing. So okay. he would, he was responsible for testing everything on the car, brakes, Performance squeaks rattles,
0: windscreen wipers. Yeah, so you think the test driver is often seen as just bravado? He actually had a great sense of a car, didn't he? In every element.
2: Yeah, he he got a feel for um, the car completely, Hmm. and he wasn't uh, backward in coming forward. He would he would make a lot of criticisms. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, just to skip on a little bit mm. to Jaguar, there was uh, one story that when he first went to Jaguar in his first week, he was given the C type to have a go. Sir so William Hines, chief engineer, said, "Take the C type out for a bit of a spin, see what you think about it. This is the car that had just won Le Mans." <laughs> and uh, he came back said, "What did you think?" He said, "Oh, pretty good in a straight line, but a terrible handling motor car," <laughs> 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 which
0: was met with stony silence. <laughs> Yes, I'm not sure that there are some bosses these days that would have taken that as a positive step to a, a constructive career. No, not at all. Uh, and so the, the C-Type. Now, he then went on, and one of the big things he did was, of course, helping develop disc brakes, wasn't it? Well, that's a story. So Jaguar, in conjunction with Dunlop, uh,
2: developed the disc brake for, uh, for cars. But uh, in the end, Jaguar wasn't the first manufacturer to put it on a, a road car the first to race it, uh, but not on a road car. But uh, they had a lot of trouble with the disc brake. It, it had been developed from a, a, a what they called a plate brake on aircraft, the Canberra aircraft. But what, what they didn't take into account was the tolerances on the, um, the stub axle and the, the wheel bearing. So what would happen is two things would happen. Uh, the, the, the incredible heat generated by the disc boiled the fluid, so they had to develop a fluid that was at a low boiling temperature, the other thing that happened is the disc, if it wasn't machined really accurately, and if the bearings weren't up to their best tolerance, it would wobble a little bit, and would, would, what they call put back stop on the, uh, the the brake pads and push them up, so that the next time you hit the pedal, it went straight to the floor, which was a little bit frightening when you're doing 130 <laughs> miles an hour down a straight and you hit the brakes and they go straight to the floor.
0: But nonetheless, I think there's a picture of Enzo Ferrari looking. At the brakes of the D-type in Le Mans, uh, C-type actually. C-type, yeah. The, okay. the first
2: win for the C-type Jaguar at Le Mans was uh, took everybody by surprise because the car wasn't particularly fast compared to the Ferraris and, and the other cars, but uh, the disc brake made an enormous difference. And yes, there is a, a picture of
0: Le Enzo Le bending over and looking through. Uh, I
2: think it's actually the um, I think it's actually the race manager for Mercedes-Benz. Ah. Oh, for mercedes yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And no, they were quite taken by it. In so, fact, I think his comment was, how many engineers do you have? And, of course, Jaguar said, oh, half a dozen in an experimental factory. And he laughed because they had hundreds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: interesting. Now, you talked about doing 130 <laughs> or more miles per hour. Uh, Norman actually did that, but... In a a situation where a few people were concerned. What was that story?
2: Yes, look, uh, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Philip at the time wanted to have a look at uh, Jaguar and what it was doing, so they took him out to a circuit. Uh, He had a lot of questions about it, technically, and he was around the car and uh, he was in the passenger seat and then he sort of uh, obviously wanted to go for a drive. So the minders at the time from the Royal Palace, said, that's fine. And he looked at Norman, who was the driver, and said, don't take him over 50 miles an hour. I'll read it to you. Yeah. Next, he got into the passenger seat, Norman says, and I was pleased, very hard at his, uh, looking very hard at his people to be careful that it wasn't going to uh, go too fast on the banking. Don't have an accident. Don't go above 50 miles an hour and all this sort of stuff, he told the Daily Mailer reporter at the time. I asked him at what speed I should drive, and he said, oh, I'd leave that to me. His only comment at 135 miles an hour was to ask how many revolutions a minute the car was doing. The sort of speed was perhaps not envisaged by the Royal Party, as uh, when it went by on the second lap, going at this speed, all I could see was waving arms.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was a time of seat of the pants. Development and driving, wasn't it? It well, Now everything's measured to an nth degree, yes. whereas this was just experienced yes. in many ways. And,
2: and on, on Dunlop road speed tyres, so like, you know, four oh. and a half inches wide yeah. at 135, 140 miles an hour. They did have a wind tunnel. Oh, well, that was with the E-Type later oh, wrong. on. But right. um, in uh, Aylsley, uh they had a, a wind tunnel, but they couldn't use the wind tunnel because uh, the power generation wouldn't cope with it. So they had to wait till everybody went to sleep at (laughs) night time. So they'd go down to the Aisley pub after work and uh, wait there until about 10 o'clock at night, then go and fire up the wind tunnel. (laughs) Wait there. Oh, well, a few beers were (laughs) consumed and I'm sure they had a great time.
0: So one of the E-Type got off the road, actually. Well, perhaps that's why it has such a... Ethereal look that they were. <laughs> <laughs> they were under the influence. Of that you, you read, of course. What was the book? It's this is a huge book. This is a book by
2: um, Paul Skilota, who's a very famous Jaguar historian called Norman Dewis of Jaguar, and it goes. Of course, Norman was at the best period of Jaguar from 1952 through to 1980, late 1980s. So he went. He went from the XK120 and Mark VII right through. To the series of XJs and XJ40 and uh, oh. uh, those sort of Cusy XJs and seated the pants absolutely, absolutely. I love it Christopher thank you very much for your time my pleasure any time for Jaguar you're
0: listening to Overdrive many people are concerned about climate change certainly the great majority of scientists in this area but while we may think globally. It's pressure at the local level that is likely to bring about the most immediate changes. Demand for electric vehicles has increased 123% in London since the introduction of the ultra-low emission zone. If your vehicle doesn't meet stringent emission standards, you pay extra tolls above the congestion charge, and the impact has spread beyond just London. According to one poll, nearly 70% of people in Britain agree that the zone is a good measure, while about a quarter remain unsure, and 4% do not agree.
1: You're listening to Overdrive. Subaru's third generation eyesight is like an extra pair of eyes with dual CMOS cameras watching the surroundings while you're driving and producing images in colour enabling recognition of even low-contrast objects. The EyeSight technology integrates seamlessly with everyday features on your Subaru, such as the adaptive cruise control, lane keep assist and lane departure warning. It recognises brake lights from the car in front and activates the pre-collision braking system to avoid or minimise impact. It will tell you if the car in front has moved away at lights if you are shamefully looking at your phone and will reduce the throttle response if you mistakenly hit the accelerator and there is an object detected in front of you. A key feature is the availability of the eyesight, status and warnings being displayed on the windscreen. Like a lot of technology in cars today, it does not replace driver attention. However, Subaru's eyesight helps make driving a safer experience. You're listening to Overdrive.
0: Well, I'm sitting inside a new Triton Mitsubishi utility I was to come to a Machines and Macchiato's event, but it has been rained out. You may be able to hear the rain in the background. But I am talking to the organiser of these events, but also a great ute driver, I believe. Sam, is that true? You own a ute? Yes, it is, David.
3: Yeah, we are very fortunate. We own a um, 1960 FB Holden Utility. Very, very different to the car we're sitting in now, actually. <laughs> it's very nice and warm on this wintry, cold day. I do have heated seats oh, that, you? You, that you could... I'm enjoying that part of it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to
0: take a photo of the two cars together, but it's raining, so you haven't bought
3: your ute? No, I haven't. That's the thing with us classic car guys. <laughs> as soon as there's a uh, speckle of rain, even on the, uh, the forecast, we tend to... Leave them inside. But um, but yeah, maybe we could Photoshop something there, David. <laughs> you have restored it? To a certain degree. We were pretty lucky. We looked for that car for about a year, and it was pretty good to start off with, but it did need a bit of tidying up. So I think everyone says their car's a bit rare, but that one's a little bit kind of unique. It came from um, WA, and the gentleman I bought it off was a bit of a collector, and he wasn't happy with it. I don't know why, but he was like chasing original paint kind of cars a lot of collectors like that so um they're more interested in you know hasn't been painted before hasn't been tampered with all this stuff and it was pretty good and he didn't want it so we took it in we only tidied it up to be honest and it's only done 106,000 original miles and you can really tell actually You said you looked for a year. Did you have a passion to do one of these cars? Yeah, look, I come from a bit of a Holden family, Holden background. So we do have another Holden, a 62 EJ, um, so it's pretty lucky about that. Yeah, and we had that for 10 years, then we thought we'd take on another project. That was before... We started doing all the uh, organising and events for the Machines Macchianos. Um So, yeah, we looked a long time. We went to Melbourne, flew down there on a promise and la, la, la. So, yeah, we're, we're very glad we've got this one. A ute. You were specifically after a ute? Yeah, specifically an FB ute. Um, I just love the shape, the characteristics, just the details, like the way the fenders um, peak at the top and just the, the look of them and, yeah, yeah, and the ride, actually, it's quite uh, it's quite fun. That would have been before you were born. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> I was born in the 70s, so, uh, yeah, look, you know, we grew up with all these Holdens around us, all my cousins and that were older than me, and um, they were always into these cars and dragging them up and hotting them up and stuff, so it's kind of in your blood. So, yeah, it was always going to be a Holden, but it was um, just a ute to be something different because we had the sedan already. We wanted to get the U and also to um, you know, be part of. We were part of the FBK club and to be part of a scene, really, just to kind of have a bit of fun and to belong to something. So it is the fraternity. Uh, I was nearly going to say religion. <laughs> <laughs> You're very close to religion, actually. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because it's kind of a bit boring just sitting in your garage on a winter's night, plodding away trying to fix something. You kind of we got into that because the FB car club had a really good kind of good presentation and th- there seemed to be really nice people and um yeah we really loved being part of that club and then that's kind of where we started machines and macchiatos to be honest because we went to the nationals in the ute in cara in 2010 uh that's when we finished it and it was fantastic it was really exciting there was hundred and whatever fb utes and there was people all over the place so it was loads of fun and that sort of sparked the idea of wow this is great and then bringing that together on a monthly basis and also to create something that was shorter because people were... A lot of people, um, when we first started mach- Machines and macchiatos, it's the cars and coffee concept, and a lot of people were saying that it your traditional car show was too long. Some might not call your Holden art, but uh, it is nonetheless a great reflection of a time. Yeah, absolutely. You just you nailed it. Um, that, that's what we love about those cars. It's the colours the shapes, the line, you can tell that they've been moulded by hand in the essence. So if you know a little bit about the way the mm. classic cars, well the cars of, you know, the early thirties, forties, fifties and sixties were molded. They were clay moulded. Mm. And you can really get a sense of that when you see the panels because there's those little peaks at the top, those little tucks, the little it they really are, and people think you're crazy, but they are a work of art because someone has designed them, someone has manufactured them, someone has put them into production, but it all started with that little clay model, getting the shapes right, getting the lines, getting the proportions right. They really are amazing, I think. Uh,
0: clearly, if you repair, wash, clean, keep a car, the nuances,
3: the little bits of it become more obvious. Definitely, and sometimes um, when you clean them, because we don't wash them anymore, it's waterless washing now, David. <laughs> Saves the rust. But sometimes you don't, you don't want to clean them, because you find the little imperfections but to your point that's what they are you know that's there's a little chip here a little little crack there or whatever but also you get to really understand the shapes and the figures and the and the design of them so yeah they're wonderful
0: I was once asked on radio how I clean a car, yeah. but, of course, I test a different one each week, so my answer was, I take it back.
3: <laughs> You've got, you got a good job, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, like, it's it's really interesting. Um, today is raining, and our event was cancelled because no person, mm. me included, wants to bring their classic car out in the rain. And I asked a lot of the guys, why is that? It's pretty obvious. Two, one, because they don't want to go home and clean it, and two, because of the rust and the rain. Half of these cars were rusty before they left the factory, honestly. And um the amount of work that people put into them. But um but yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you've got a big event coming up. We do, yeah. We're really excited about that. Um November the 23rd and 24th of November, up at the St. I Showgrounds. It's called The Machines Macchiato's Triple Shot Super Show. Sam, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to Overdrive. Car manufacturers always want to enhance the relationship with buyers. A brand must radiate a lifestyle image, not just offer transport solutions. In Australia, Hyundai's luxury brand, Genesis, didn't relaunch at a dealership, but rather opened a new studio in Sydney's Central Business District. Genesis said the studio was defined by its spiral staircase encircled by a spectacular bespoke large-scale curved led screen some cars were also on display the other trend is loyalty benefits genesis owners have access to a lifestyle program including a lifestyle concierge and global privileges And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for doing the hard yards in supporting this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at Driven Media and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course, you can look up our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.